0: The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash matmdegree. That's Fuller. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly Podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest books from authors interviewed and a vip experience at this summer's general assembly we want to thank william johnson and cindy Follendorf for their monthly support of the podcast check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support and now on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. David Gushy. David is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics and the Director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. He's the author of numer- numerous books, including Changing Our Mind and a new book, After Evangelicalism. David, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks for having me on your show, Andy.
0: Well, before I guess we get to the book and your work, i um, I guess I have to ask, uh, how are you doing? How has this COVID experience been for you?
1: Uh, it's been surreal. Um, you know, March 13th was when life just kind of was the last day that life was normal for us in Atlanta. And, um, this, I mean, uh, we have not lost anybody in our immediate family or in our immediate church family. Um, but it feels, um, so in that sense, it feels kind of surreal, like it's happening out there. Um, on the other hand, it, it seems to be getting closer. So anyway, it's, we're living, you know, me and my family and the Mercer community, we're living through this crisis, just like everyone else and trying to take it one day at a time. But, um, but so far, my family is okay, and my immediate circle of friends are okay and i'm grateful to god for that for sure while grieving everything that's been going on nationally and globally
0: yeah well i'm i'm sure we could spend an endless amount of time talking about this but but what are some of the theological and ethical issues that have been raised through this pandemic
1: oh through the pandemic um well uh acutely uh, theologically I would say the where is God question um, is is never far away and um, uh, I would say the interconnectedness of all people and people in the creation um, I mean the way in which we literally uh, are so connected to each other that we breathe the air that other people breathe. If other people exhale, we inhale. And now we know that in some cases, that exhale, inhale may be deadly for ourselves or others. Uh, the vulnerability of creation to, uh, you know, to some combination of of the brokenness of its of its own nature and and human uh, uh, travel and interconnectedness, as well as mistakes um I tend to think like an emphasis I think about the role of government the need for government uh, to have all the relevant expertise and to and to deploy it to protect human life in the sense that our government at least hasn't done very well here governments um, the um, the fact that all the time we live with these fractures in our society of of health disparities and social and economic disparities racial disparities and injustices and it's like this uh, virus uh, is a predator it preys on human life in general but it also preys especially on our disparities so that those who are the most disadvantaged and the most powerless are the ones uh, most vulnerable uh, both to the health and economic Consequences. It always seems to be that way. Whatever whatever the problem is, it is always worse for those who are already on the bottom of the social order. So all of that is heartbreaking. You know, I, I would say um, the other thing is pastorally. I think we have to realize that everybody is attempting to cope with this reality in their own way. And. You know, with some mixture of like reading the newspaper every day to figure out what's going on or, or just say, you know, I'm going to take a week off. I can't deal with this, you know, um, uh, of of attempting to feel some sense of control and, or surrendering that and realizing we have no control or little. Um, so I think we're going to be studying and reflecting on these days for a long time to come. Overall, 2020 has been an awful year. And um one of the years that people will be writing about a hundred years from now, I think that's just been something to live through. That's for sure.
0: I know I began 2020 with uh, somewhat a, a tongue in cheek, uh, sermon series, uh, 2020 vision, you know, this is going to be a year we see clearly, uh, you know, so many organizations and institutions use that, that terminology kind of looking yeah. at this year and, and my, my, mind did, uh, did any of us anticipate, um, you know, really that 2020 was a year in which we were finally given, for many people, the lens to see clearly the plight that other people experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, and you certainly alluded to this in the sense that this pandemic has has really heightened uh, many people's awareness uh, of the economic and racial disparity that that's in America um, today.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, we're certainly seeing with 2020 vision. Uh, but it's so interesting about human life that, well, that we never know what's around the corner. And um, everybody's sermon series and everybody's plans just blown to smithereens as we, uh, as we go through this, you know. Um, but um, my hope is that, I mean, at the health level, that we will get a vaccine and it will be effective. And by this time next year, uh, there'll be some kind of new normal. Um, but, but I also am hoping that that the, the need for dramatic changes in how how this country governs itself will actually have yielded some changes by this time next year. You know, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But that concerns about how government is functioning and uh, the, the the state of our society all through the the new book and and uh but I, I of course i didn't know that a, a pandemic was coming but i think some of the concerns still read pretty accurate in light of that pandemic
0: yeah well let's let's jump to the book i mean i know that we're not going to have the opportunity to certainly cover all the topics that are in the book you know ultimately cuz we we want people to go and to purchase it and to read it and to um to process it and to put into action some of the questions that you've raised in the book. Um, But uh, this new book, After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity, and this work is an invitation to those who have been ready to leave the faith they inherited, uh, one that that trends um, with republicanism, with anti-LGBTQ, supporting systematic racism, and the like by seeing that Christian ethos is not limited to evangelicalism. And you wrote, uh, post-evangelicals are banning the church. Uh, Some are leaving for reasons uh, peculiar to the American evangelical experience. Those reasons begin with a disillusionment over the teachings that are viewed as harmful and vulnerable. Most are leaving in a state of trauma, reporting their evangelical experience as one of abuse or violence. Walk us through the motivation for writing this book now.
1: Um. I would say that um, you might say that my career has two tracks to it, uh, and I did not anticipate this when I started. One was, you know, the scholar ethicist uh, trying to um, to perform my vocation the way I was trained to do it, um, writing scholarly articles and books and teaching classes. And advancing the field of Christian ethics, right? So that, like, my teacher was Glenn Sasson of Fuller Southern, and then Fuller, and um, he he kind of modeled that for me. Um, so at one level, I've been doing that by doing things like writing Kingdom Ethics and other books. Um, but another level, I've been publicly wrestling with this thing called evangelical Christianity. Uh, first of all. Claiming the identity for most of my professional career and then, you know, situating myself as a kind of a progressive evangelical for a number of years. And then uh, becoming uh, deeply disillusioned with American evangelicalism as an expression of Christianity, alarmed even um, uh, in some moods, disgusted. Certainly uh, alienated. So after 2014, 2015, um, beginning to interrogate this identity that had been important to me uh, in print uh, in some new ways, like with my memoir called Still Christian, uh, which came out in 2017, and um, which was more of a personal story. Um, in that book, I basically said I'm no longer consider myself an evangelical Christian um but in this book, I'm I'm attempting to return to this theme one more time to name uh, a trend, which is that there's millions of people who were once evangelical Christians who are now not either out of church away from God or or in some wilderness place who needs who need a new vision who need, a uh, new way to think about theology and ethics and church and new community, and maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, just kind of pastoral care. Um, and and so this book is, a, is more of a theological and ethical statement of belief and conviction, not just kind of storytelling, but more like, here on the other side of evangelicalism, here's what I believe, and I commend it to you as something to consider. Um, so I wrote it as you might say, the end of a personal journey. I don't think I'm ever going to write again about about evangelicalism and post-evangelicalism because I think this book says what I want to say. I um, mean, never say never, but I don't think I have another book in me on it. Um, but it's also pastoral uh, in that along the way, especially the last five years, I've met so many ex-evangelical Christians that um that are hurting, many of them younger, like a generation or more younger than me. And so it, it feels pastoral, like um, I'm still enough of a gospel preacher that when I see people who who are not sure they can be Christian, they're not sure they want to go to church or, or believe in Jesus anymore because of the excesses and mistakes of especially white evangelical Christianity, then I, I don't know, I feel kind of an urgent sense of a need to try to address them. So that's really where the book comes from.
0: Well, I would agree with you. Never say never, because, you know, um, evangelicalism for, uh, at least the last 80 years, uh, continues to give fodder for all theologians, pastors and ethicists <laughs> to, to consider. Um, yeah. you know, as you said earlier, um, You grew up evangelical, and um, you've also been transparent with your readers and students about the deconstruction of this worldview and a reconstruction into something different. And this is no more apparent than in your book, Changing Our Mind, in which you took readers through your theological process of transforming the way you see the LGBTQ conversation. And certainly you write this in this particular book. Um, Walk us through your personal process of, of deconstruction of American evangelicalism in your life, and, and maybe talk about what, what was the greatest theological obstacle you had to overcome in this process?
1: Um, well, first a biographical note, or autobiographical note. I grew up Catholic, um, but, it, but I never really took it very seriously, and it didn't really take for me as a kid. And then I wandered into a Southern Baptist church when I was 16 because of a girl that I was dating at the time. Um, but I had wandered in there not because of her at that moment; she was out of town. I, I was somehow drawn into that church looking for something, and I had a dramatic conversion experience of a, of the kind that uh, evangelists kind of dream of. You know, walked into a church on a Friday afternoon, and by Monday I was saying the sinner's prayer and deeply. Uh, transformed over the next year or two to become a kind of fire-breathing evangelical Christian um, of, of late 70s, Jesus-type, you know, Jesus-y, very Jesus-y, very Bible-centered, um, very devotional, very evangelistic. And um, this was in the Southern Baptist Church, and so I I I, am, I dove in deeply at the Southern Baptist. It, for for CBF-type uh, listeners, it is interesting to note that I'm not from a Southern Baptist pedigree. I was converted into Southern Baptist in a year that might strike people as interesting. There's 1978. It was just before the convention controversy. So when I, when I joined the the Southern Baptist, I joined as a born again Christian, had no idea a convention fight was coming, but I bought kind of pretty conservative version of Southern Baptist religion. Um, uh, which is, Can be described at least as a species of evangelicalism, Um, though that was, of course, debated by the historians. But, and we we didn't call it evangelical at Providence Baptist Church in 1978-79. It was born again, Uh, deep devotion to Jesus, um, uh, deep commitment to Scripture, which is understood to be something like infallible or inerrant, deep evangelistic and missionary mandate, Uh, conversionism of yourself and of others um the idea that the that Christianity is supposed to affect the whole of your life no, nothing is excluded so you're 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 very vigilant about about your character and your behavior so moralistic and um devout you know there's a lot of me that that is still deeply affected by all of that and and my life has been shaped by that um there's a lot of it I wouldn't change um. But there were other elements brewing in evangelicalism as an American, especially an American religious phenomenon that that I wasn't um, fully clued into at the time. And in some ways developed even only during the course of my uh, lifetime, at least exacerbated, like, for example, um, the deep uh, conservative politics of white evangelicalism. There were some people like that at my first church, but um, it, wasn't, it wasn't what we talked about. We talked about following Jesus and winning people to Christ and heaven and hell and things like that, right? So it was, it was a different kind of Christianity. Um, uh, I was, of course, uh, unaware of the deep uh, history of, of white Christian racism. Our church was all white, I believe, and it just nobody talked about it and so the obliviousness or worse about race i I didn't grapple with at the time um, you know the idea that um that this conservative religiosity also involved a lot of excluding of people like uh, gay people um, women were treated as second class in a lot of ways um, that was not immediately apparent to me at the time um and um and the some of the exaggerated claims about an inerrant bible one of the, one of the books that was given to me as a new christian was w a criswell why i believe the bible is literally true and of course nobody told me about criswell's su- support for racism and segregation uh, nor about the rickety nature of of uh, that way of looking at the bible so so I explore all of that in the book, but, but, but the, the deconstruction really accelerated for me. I mean, there had been some disillusionment growing, but it really accelerated for me when I realized that evangelicals in general were not able to open their minds and hearts to LGBTQ people, that, they, that, they, that their framework of thought and piety made it impossible for them to reconsider this issue, and um, that that hurt an awful lot of people. Um, and once I became convinced through my own reasoning process and prayerful process that 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 uh, issue had been wrongly decided, that it needed to be reconsidered, but evangelicals could not move on it, um, that really began my um, my deconstruction of, of evangelical identity and um, to the place where I'm definitely on the other side of it now. Um, and that also was pastoral. Um, I didn't say that like within, within about nine months of my conversion experience as a high school kid, I felt called to ministry as we, as we say sometimes in Baptist life. And that has never gone away. And so it's my minister's heart for people who have been, wounded deeply by the church or churches that is always, that is often at the heart of what I do and why I do it. And watching these um, wounded LGBTQ exiles, often very young people, um, broke my heart and changed my heart and helped to lead to the deconstruction of my evangelical identity and theology. Do you
0: think this is the Remaining obstacle, you know, for a lot of people. Do you think this is the greatest obstacle for people who may not realize that they're not post-Christian, but just post-evangelical?
1: Um. Uh, I think that something I tell my students: there's no one thing of, called Christianity. There's multiple versions of Christianity, and leaders are the ones. Like pastors, teachers, writers, sometimes parents, are the ones who project a version of Christianity and usually call it just Christianity. And that is what those who are under their leadership often believe. So, you know, you grow up in First Baptist, you know, X town, and the legendary pastor is preaching and leading and, and, and directing a church. Along a certain vision. And the great majority of people in that community of faith are likely to believe, especially if they don't have a lot of diversity of life experience, that whatever Pastor so and so is preaching, teaching, and doing, that just is Christianity. That's just, that's how it goes. That's what Jesus wants. That's what the Bible says. And that's often, of course, reinforced by the certainty with which Pastor so and so usually communicates, right? You know, in a lot of traditional churches. Um, so, you know, imagine the 16-year-old or 17-year-old uh, uh, young person growing up in a church like that who discovers that they are gay or lesbian, and Pastor So-and-so is resolutely preaching against them and, quote, their lifestyle or whatever, and and that the Bible clearly says thus and, thus, thus and such about this. You know, you can see how for a large percentage of of people like that, they're just going to actually believe what their pastor says and will conclude either that they are broken, they're sinful beyond reclamation, or that the church is their enemy. Jesus is their enemy, and there's no place for them in the church. And so it's like they come to a fork in the road, and, and they conclude that there is no place in the church for them because they've been told that there's no place in the church for them. Um, and so, so, but what they don't know is that that's one version of Christianity. That the judgments that are being made by pastor so and so are debatable. That the text can be looked at looked at in different ways. That there are millions of other Christians, and thousands of other pastors and ethicists and theologians who look at the same issue in different ways um and so and so it's a tremendous tragedy that so many really millions of people who do not know the difference between post evangelical christianity and post christianity they feel like if they've left what mom and dad and pastor so and so raised them to believe they've left jesus and and that's just not true and so part of what my book is about is to speak to them to help them to help them map where they are and to find a way back to Jesus, even if they're finding their way out of evangelicalism.
0: This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience and highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. I want to amend part of my question. I'm usually very careful in talking about that. LGBTQ uh, conversation, uh, not an issue as if um, there's not people identified uh, with that. We're talking about people. We're talking about lives. So um, right. just amend that that question to say uh, that conversation, that obstacle for people. Let's, uh, let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Many post evangelicals struggle to correlate the Jesus seen in the gospels and the one taught about in the local church. And I even surmise that, Many post-evangelical pastors leading in evangelical churches generate the most conflict based on their socio-political and economic implications of Jesus' ministry through their preaching, through their teaching. Um, You wrote, should Jesus be interpreted as a radical social change teacher? Did he offer subversive practices like enemy love and turning the other cheek as part of a strategy of moral resistance employable in many situations of injustice? Do you do you think that the greatest chasm between post-evangelicals and evangelicals is their understanding of Jesus, his his life, his teachings, his ministries, miracle, and if so, is that an unbridgeable chasm that that can be overcome?
1: Um, I'm excited about the chapter about Jesus that I have in the book. So this is my um, my own original, you know. Christology, basically, and I've never, I mean, the closest I've come to writing about Jesus um, at this this level of depth is the co-authored book that Glenn and I did, Glenn Sasson, Kingdom Ethics, which was mainly about his teachings, um, his moral teachings. I, in digging around for that chapter, um, I I concluded that differences over the meaning of Jesus are fundamental to—it's not just the difference between evangelical and post-evangelical Christianity, but also evangelical and mainline Christianity now, kind of the older conversation. Um, I think that the Jesus— uh, that we get in um, in and I keep talking about race, and I imagine you'll come to it you know later, but this is important. the Jesus that we get in conservative white American Christianity is a Jesus carefully constructed so as to offer no challenge to White privilege to economic injustice um, to um, structures of uh, sexism. Um, It's Jesus who is mainly about one thing. He dies on the cross for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. He commands that we tell others about Jesus so they can go to heaven when they die. Um, And he, um, he wants us to be good and holy and moral people in a, kind of a personal sense. Um, and he wants us to believe all the right doctrines about him and the meaning of his cross and the meaning of the Bible and things like that. So um, actually in the chapter, I talk about various versions of Jesus and, and a couple of them are embedded there. Um there's some pop versions of Jesus like Jesus who's my best friend, Jesus who comforts me when I'm down, Jesus who wants me to be a successful middle class professional. Um but none of that is that demanding Jesus who you know was such a challenge to the status quo in his time and in ours who who scandalized those around him by the way he cared for the oppressed and the outcast um, who said that the good news was for the poor um, who who was always found um, alienated from the religious authorities of his time because of his radical understanding of the love of God and the kingdom of God that was about the reclaiming of a just world um, for the God who made this world and who loves everybody in the world. Um, by the way, this, this is also a difference between kind of white Christianity and historic, um, many versions of historic black Christianity in the U.S., um, uh, insistent on social justice and social change, insistent that every life matters, that black lives matter, um, Insistent that Jesus is about social transformation and about a personal relationship with every individual. Um so the the more I zeroed in on what was wrong with white evangelical Christianity the more the white the whiteness piece of it and the American piece of it became an important part of the story for me. But yeah, um I think fundamental differences over the meaning of Jesus and what it means to preach Jesus are at the heart of a hundred years of theological conflicts or more in this country and are now at stake in the evangelical and post-evangelical divide.
0: Let's talk about politics. Uh, For many post-evangelicals, the 2016 election was the proverbial Uh, Strand that uh, that broke that was keeping them connected to the faith. And we all know the statistics, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, a person in many people's eyes that was the most controversial, unethical candidate in modern Republican era. Um, The reality is that um, really this is just another chapter in nearly 80-year history of the marriage of conservative politics with the evangelical movement. you're an ethicist. Uh, walk us through the theological gymnastics that people go through to justify their faith in politics.
1: Um, there's a lot of really good literature. I'm glad you said 80 years. It's you, one could one could say if it's 2020 right now, one could say um, 120 years really um, from the birth of the social gospel movement in the late. 19th century and early 20th century, that movement, which said um, that to follow Jesus is to care about the plight of of the working poor, the immigrants, um, those in urban squalor, those whose children were dying of preventable diseases, um, and that Jesus uh, must be read as about those kinds of concerns, the social gospel. Um, that movement gradually helped to contribute to a split between politically conservative and politically progressive Christians that is about 120 years old. Um, And the conservative side uh, increasingly rallied around the banner of not just conservative politics, but supposedly conservative theology. So it was fundamentalism even before evangelicalism that In general, not always, but in general, was opposed to the progressive movement of the early 20th century. They were opposed to um, often to New Deal uh, things like the Social Security system, Um, opposed to uh, the Great Society programs of the 60s, opposed to the Civil Rights Movement in many cases, Um, opposed to the end of Jim Crow, Uh, opposed to... Um, Medicare and Medicaid, um, and blending kind of libertarian economics, um, and uh, maintenance of the status quo, of uh, of uh, racial injustice, and a kind of a corporatist, what's you know kind of business-driven uh, vision of a good society and a good life tend to be anti-union, you know um anti uh minimum wage, you know, worker rights all the way back to 120 years ago. Um the the partisan making that a purely partisan thing, it was gradual. Um you know, coming out of the civil war that you might say the Democrats and Republicans roles as we understand them now were completely reversed. But gradually from the late 50s and then into the 60s, especially, um, Democrats became associated with the progressive social justice side of our politics, Republicans with the conservative side. And then with the birth of the, of the Christian right, um, there was a kind of an unholy marriage or, or compact struck. The, the preachers would support the Republican Party lock, stock, and barrel if the Republican Party would promise the preachers,
0: you know, anti
1: abortion planks. Uh, Conservative judges and support for um, for the institutions and values of conservative Christianity as far as possible. A little bit of uh, pro-Israel in the Israel-Palestine thing is also part of it for a variety of complicated reasons. And so, beginning with Ronald Reagan in the in in his presidential campaign in 1980, um, this pact was struck. Um, Also hawkish foreign policy, you know, kind of militant and pro-military in general. That was where it started. Um, but anyway, what has happened now is is almost a, a complete symbiosis between conservative, white, Christian, Republican, partisan political identity, all fused together such that probably many of our listeners would know. Or would even be in subcultures in which the idea that a Christian could ever vote Democrat would be like um, anathema, just inconceivable. Um, that's quite an advantage for one political party to have. To have, you know, as think of all the Southern states we're talking about here, as well as large parts of the rest of the country, lined up. No matter who, the, no matter who the party puts forward, if they offer some lip service to conservative judges, anti-abortion, et cetera, Christian America, um, then they're going to get the support of these preachers and of the white Republican Christian voter. The fact that Donald Trump was able to get that same kind of support, um, despite everything, despite the Access Hollywood thing, despite his personal record and background, despite the way he ran his campaign, was shocking of people who thought that there might be some limit to this symbiosis between conservative white people and and Christianity and the Republican Party, but there was no limit. And there does still appear to be very little limit. And um, a lot of people um, just could not stomach that. Now, this has been happening for a while. I've documented in some earlier writing center and center left and progressive Christians who just don't believe that Christianity has to mean conservative politics. And so they've been kind of spinning off of evangelicalism for a while. But this is a larger chunk of especially young people who are like, what are you doing? How can you support this guy? And and the, the deeper his excesses and evils went, and the fact that people found a way to explain away everything, except everything. Uh, Deepen the disillusionment. So 2016 was a huge trigger for uh, exodus from white evangelicalism, no question about it. And by the way, it was also extraordinarily disillusioning for um, minority Christians and others, um, black Christians, Latinx Christians, because of the explicit and implicit racism of the way Trump functions in the world and the way he talks and the way his, the way his policies have turned out. Um, that if that's not a bridge too far, then what is? And so the tensions between, uh, or the uh, tension not strong enough word, the alienation between Christians across racial lines related to Trump has, has been in very intense and is not going away.
0: You know, in a recent survey done by Pew Research, six in 10 Americans say that it's important to have moral and ethical rather than religious president. And only 32% of Americans describe Donald Trump as morally upstanding. Yet, 61% of white evangelicals say that Trump is morally upstanding. What do you imagine will be the outcome of the 2020 presidential election? Do you, do you think 81% of white evangelicals will be casting the same vote in 2016? And I guess to compound on that question, what do you think that means for the church uh, post-election?
1: Um, by the way, only 61% of white evangelicals say more- moral, ethical values are important in the president? Is that what your number was?
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. rather rather Um, than religious.
1: Yeah. Um, Basically, all the polling has shown that um, white evangelicals have been adjusting their values to be able to continue to support Trump. It's not universal, but I would describe it as a seduction. And um, there is a, a group a significant group that you know uh no matter what he does they'll find a way to make the adjustment so that they can continue to support him um that is one of the most remarkable things about politics the way that people can lose their bearings when their loyalties get out of whack you know um at this point we're not talking about loyalty to principle at all uh we're talking about loyalty to a person and um and nothing appears to be to be able to penetrate it. Um, I think probably the 2020 election um, uh, will see at least 75% of white evangelicals voting for Trump. Um, so maybe he will lose five to six percent. Um, there, if if things are not going well for him, um, and he keeps making the kinds of Disastrous mistakes he's made in the last six months, especially, it may be that turnout will, will be down. Sometimes the way that an election goes wrong for a candidate is, is they've just lost the enthusiasm of their voters and people decide to stay home. But I think of those who do go to the polls, he will still probably get 75 percent of white evangelicals. Um, and that'll help keep it close or semi-close, certainly in many states, in the South, especially in the Midwest. Um, I think he'll probably lose if we have a free and fair election. And if if it's possible to get him dislodged from the White House, I think think he will lose. But I think that the disillusionment over the loyalty of white evangelicals will increase. Um, And by the way, it's kind of like what we – to circle back to what we said earlier, for a lot of skeptics of religion, the visible white evangelicals – who are so into Trump. It's disillusioning about Christianity in general. Again, people not being as aware as they should be of other versions, other strands of Christianity, um, over-identifying white evangelicals just with Christianity um, will contribute, has contributed already, and will contribute to further disillusionment and turn away from the church. sometimes it seems that the worst advertisement for Jesus are those who are most loudly visible in his name and, um, and the growing uh, secularization uh, of American society, which really is happening now. um, White evangelicals bear considerable responsibility for that.
0: That's where I'd like to to turn to our kind of last segment in this conversation, which is the exodus of roughly 25 million Americans out of the evangelical movement um, over the last couple of decades. And some have gone to other faith traditions while some have left the faith altogether. What do you say to the local church that's struggling to identify with this new world they find themselves in, in which they no longer have the upper hand, if you will. And, And how does the church pivot to reconnect with this base of people?
1: Um, I really do think it's important for, uh, local church leaders to understand that this post-evangelical cohort is real. Um, they're everywhere. Um, I think they're especially profound and profoundly visible in the younger than 35 cohort. Um, but, uh, but there's plenty of ex-evangelicals of older, um, older uh, generations as well. Um, I think uh, some of these folks are just lost to the church. I mean, they, they're not coming back. Um, they've been burned too many times. But, but others are reachable. And I think that pastors probably have little choice but to be very explicit about about naming the sources of the disillusionment in various ways, you know, sermons, blog posts, videos, uh, outreach efforts, um, conversations of all types, and saying uh here's where we're different here's what we believe here's what we believe about jesus here's what we believe about the bible um here's what we believe about sexuality and about race and here's what we do here's our here's the nature of our community and of our practice as a as a people um, we hope you'll give us a look um, I say in the book that if you were really deeply in the evangelical subculture you're probably going to find it difficult to find a church where you feel holistically comfortable because like sometimes the the mainline churches their worship style and culture is so different that the these post evangelicals don't feel at home um but but they're not going to go to evangelical churches anymore i talk in the book about how some some churches are experimenting with post-evangelical ministries actually targeted for the uh, refugees of, of evangelicalism, um, whether it's specific kinds of worship services or educational programs or uh, study groups, whatever. Um, uh, I, I think post-evangelicals could be a major source of renewal. And I, I do want to note that a lot of post-evangelicals are, are people who've been wounded on the, in terms of the power structure, so it's LGBTQ people, it's women, uh, it's people of color, it's political progressives who felt like they were told they were going to hell because they don't vote for Trump. Um, so it's people who uh, who come from a wounded place, who come from a dissenting place, um, who don't know if the church has space for them. But they're there. I think they're, you'll find a lot of them in university towns. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, well-educated folks, um, a lot of folks who, who somewhere along the way were told that their questions and their concerns and their persons were not fully wanted. Um, but, but a, a winsome, attractive version of, the, of, of Jesus and of the gospel, I think has a chance to reach a lot of them. And I think it's, I hope that that a lot of ministers and churches are thinking about how to reach them because they're there, for sure, and they're hungry.
0: What's your hope for the church in this new and unfamiliar territory we find ourselves in?
1: Um, I think that it's possible that, that a lot of people who have been hanging on going to church on the basis of tradition or habit We may lose some of them during this long COVID absence. Um, And so that could be very costly, and there may be some churches that are not going to be able to survive losing those folks. But I think that the people who are hanging with us through online church right now um, and the people who will be interested on the other side are... Are people around whom one can build, uh, because they're because not even COVID, not even a year of online church, if it turns out to be like that, um, not even the risk of gathering in a group when that time comes again, um, will keep them away. There's something that they're looking for in church that keeps them coming or keeps them interested. So I think. I think that a really real, honest, raw, um, um, humbled, hungry community is possible on the other side of this. Now, I don't know how we pay for all of our buildings and utility bills and staff and, you know, a lot of the apparatus of church. I don't know whether the Capitol is going to be there to continue to support all of it. But the community uh, that, as I just described it, I think that's that's going to survive and may even be stronger on the other side. You know, my model at this point of what of what Christian community looks like is really in my little Sunday school class. Not so little actually. It's called Seeking the Kingdom. It's at my church in Decatur, and um, there's about fifty of us. And I, I've been the teacher for 13 years, the main teacher. Spouse a third LGBTQ, at least a half who have been alienated from church along the way. Um, but when, what they have found in my in my little community is something for most of them and for me too that is unbreakable that is so important to the sustenance of their lives, of their souls, of their spirit that they're just not going away. Um, they couldn't imagine not participating in whatever is available. Um, That, I think, that is church that can't be broken by even a pandemic. And um, kind of my hope is that that is what will survive on the other side. It's really, you don't have to be a brilliant preacher um, or uh, some kind of magician of programming to make that kind of thing happen. You just have to offer some compelling vision of Jesus in a community that approximates that in the way you love each other and the way you, you hang together um, in life and go through life together. Um, so I think it's going I think church is going to get simpler and smaller, but maybe more intense. And that sounds pretty appealing in some ways for me. Well,
0: if you want to stay connected with David, visit davidgushy.com. You can follow him on social media. Of course, go out and purchase after evangelicalism wherever books are sold. David, thank you for taking the time for this conversation, and thank you for your work in helping people to see that they do not have to leave behind their faith when departing evangelicalism.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Andy, for the opportunity, and I hope that uh, that the book triggers a lot of a lot of good conversations. But mainly, what I hope it it triggers is people being willing to try out Jesus again. That would be the fondest hope
0: of the book so thanks a lot well that's it that's our conversation be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites fuller.edu and healthychurch.org check out cbf.net for information about our church starters field personnel advocacy work chaplains and much more oh and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support For ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff.